Okay, I brought you these books, and um, don't feel obligated to use them, but we are going to be looking at Matthew chapters 1 through 4, and it's sometimes helpful to have the book in front of us, as, particularly as we have questions or comments or concerns. Um, I can't really tell you exactly what page number to turn to, because uh, we all have different versions. Um, well, not all of us do. Most of you have the, all, the NRSV, and that would be on page number, well, <laughs> two. <laughs> it's toward the back half. Um, and while you're finding it, uh, we'll uh, just give a little second here, and then we will, uh, we will gather in prayer, and we'll start talking about Matthew 1 through 4. We're trying to find Matthew, the book of Matthew, and we'll be looking at 1 through 4. If anybody needs help, let me know, because as a young person, this is what I spent most of my youth group time doing. Uh, it's helpful now. We called them sword drills. We sure did, because we sure did conceive of God's word as a weapon. Um, I don't know why. Okay, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, you make us glad with the weekly remembrance of the glorious resurrection of your Son, our Lord. Give us this day such blessing through our worship of you that the week to come may be spent in your favor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so uh, hopefully you had enough time to kind of look at Matthew ahead of time. And I just want to warn you, and I'll tell you this warning again, next week we have to talk about the organ we've been gifted with. So we're going to kind of do this little bit of shifting around a bit, and that means we might look at Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, so we can stay on track two weeks from today. Does that, does that kind of make sense? We better talk about this organ business, because it's already being talked about, so we better talk about it, and, and there's no better time than next week. Anne, are you okay with that book cart in a way? Okay, all right. Well, um, well, welcome to Matthew. And again, just to kind of remind you a little bit, and you can decide how much importance you want to give this, and ultimately you can choose to give it very little. Um, Matthew is arguably either the second or the third gospel that, that was written chronologically, right? So, so pretty much 99.9% .9 of, of scholars, Protestant or Catholic, or Jewish, will tell you the order of the Gospels is number one, Mark. Number two is a toss-up between Matthew and Luke, but most people are going to put Matthew second and Luke third. And then very last one, of course, I told you last week is the Gospel of John. All right. Now, what time is Matthew written? Very, very few people will say Matthew was written before 70 of the Common Era. That's A.D., if you're more comfortable with that, before 70. Although you will find some people that will put it maybe at 68. So I'm going to give it a really wide bandwidth of 12 years, and that's pretty safe. Okay? Luke, probably similar. I've found people that go back to 65 but really, let's kind of be serious. Both of these things, really the better bandwidth is probably somewhere like 73 to 83. So, so similar timelines for both. Does that make sense? Very unlikely that Luke 
had Matthew when Luke wrote Luke. Okay? Very unlikely. Very likely that Matthew had Mark when Matthew wrote Matthew. Very likely that Luke had Mark when Luke wrote Luke. Very likely Matthew and Luke had something else in common that wasn't Mark. Okay? Does any of this matter? You'll be the judge of that. I was subjected to it for a long time. In some ways, it helps you appreciate the differences of the Gospels, okay? And, and now, we talked a little bit last time about this, but just a refresher, Matthew is arguably the most Jewish of the Gospels, okay? And in good Jewish fashion, Matthew begins with a stirring genealogy. <laughs> There's nothing more exciting or saliva-producing than a genealogy that runs for chapters. Now, now, Matthew has done something very interesting, right? Of course, he's condensed it to just one chapter, so you only have to sit through it once. If you read Deuteronomy, Numbers, good Lord. I mean, there is chapters upon chapters. Let's talk about the genealogy, though, because I, I told you this last time. Matthew and Luke have completely different genealogies completely different. Let's look at some of the highlights from Matthews, because again, what, what's happening is they're taking some of the same stories, and they're, they're putting them in different places as they build essentially a wall and a bricks. So they're building their wall differently because they're building a different picture of Jesus, okay? And they're applying their own mortar. So sometimes they'll take a story same story, and they'll put a different preface or a different conclusion to it in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. And what that is telling you is the story was common, but the mortar is unique. Does that make sense? Okay, Because these are people who, who, you know, anybody who's had a sixth grade education or higher, and by the way, Mark is sort of, I told you this last week, Mark is sort of the, the fifth grade version of the gospel, and Matthew and Luke are certainly the eighth grade. Right? These are the Newsweek, the, the Newsweek level of reading. And this is, oh gosh, New York Times? Is that fifth grade? I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, okay. Anyway, okay. So that's, that's what they're doing. All right. Here's the first thing that's really interesting about Matthew. Okay? In a genealogy, he only gives you three figures. All right? He gives you three. So the first thing he does, because he's Jewish, right? And the Jewish people, we think, is he goes back to Abraham. Because Abraham, remember, not the first human being, but the first person called into a covenant with God, and the sign of the covenant that Abraham and God had, that no one before Abraham had, does anybody know this one? Circumcision. <laughs> and Abraham did that to himself as a 90-year-old man with a flint knife. Okay, so, so this, he's the first one. Now I told you, in Luke... Luke is Greek. The, the name is Greek. Uh, writing arguably to Greek people who have really interested in Judaism but now following Jesus without following all of Jewish practice. Luke doesn't go back to Abraham. Luke goes back to Adam. Luke is arguing on common humanity. A, um, Matthew, on the other hand, is saying, look, we're going back to the institutor of the covenant. So it's likely that Matthew is writing to a group of people following Jesus who have also decided to follow Jewish law. And Jewish law being probably kosher food, 
right? Worshiping on Friday night or Saturday morning. Does this make sense? Luke's people, maybe not, okay? So different groups, you've got to address them differently, all right? So first genealogy is Abraham to David, and there's exactly 12 people in between them. Okay, now 12, remember, good Jewish number, 12 tribes of Israel, and we see that again in 12 disciples, right? Jewish people have a really strong sense of numerology. It's called gematria. I shouldn't say that that, that way. Jewish religion has a strong sense of particular numbers, right? So there's numbers you'll see in the Hebrew Bible over and over again. Three is a big one. Seven is the perfect number. Ten is big. Twelve. And then you're 40, 144. Okay, those just seem to be um, numbers that appear so much more that they must have more than historical significance, if that makes sense. And 12 is one of those numbers because of the tribes. In fact, if you know your, your Bible well, um, Jacob initially has 12 children, and one of them's a girl, Dina. If you read The Red Tent, you can read about this. Interesting book. Dina is laid down with by Shechem, and at that point, she's considered sort of not good, and so Jacob has to have another kid. And he doesn't. So instead of Joseph getting a blessing, Joseph's twin sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, get blessed, and that brings the number 11 back up to 12. Does, does this make sense? Girl's already a problem, but damaged goods girl, as the story goes, total problem. So there's no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of his boys, and that's unique, and that brings the number back to 12. Okay, same thing happens. Judas hangs himself full of remorse, right? Have to replace him, and that, that's what happens in Acts chapter 1. They replace Judas, okay? All right, so in, there's 12. Now, here's something that... Ma- yes, ma'am? I know, yeah. There's 12 in between them. That's right, 12 in between them. One and 14, which means 12 in between. Is this okay? Yeah. You're not bursting in a bubble. It's good. But it was interesting to you that there was a verse here that I should emphasize by 14. Yeah, and we don't know any real significance for 14. We don't know it. But we know 12, and this is how most scholars look at it. They say that 14 is really saying there's the perfect number of people between this guy and this guy. Okay? What's interesting is, and you may think you, this is a little different now, do you know how you're considered Jewish now, ethnically? It's tracked through your mother, okay? That's only about a thousand years old, right? So ancient cultures in general, not matriarchal, not, including the Bible. So notice, this is a, paterni- this is a paternal um, genealogy, and here's the thing you might be wondering. Well, I thought Joseph wasn't Jesus' dad. <laughs> So why track it through the dad? And that's because no one tracked it through the mom. So just think about this. Jesus is descended from David through a man who's not his father. <laughs> well, I just thought that was funny. Okay, well, all right. So what does Matthew do that's not very Jewish? He puts women in a genealogy. And interestingly enough, Luke doesn't do this. Luke does not, and Luke is the most women-friendly gospel writer, arguably the most woman-friendly uh, person in the Bible. And that's where Jesus consults with a lot of women. He touches them. He talks to them. 
But Luke doesn't put the women in. Uh, Matthew puts in two women in this phrase right here. One is Tamar, and the other is Ruth. Okay? Not only are these women, they're not Jewish women, and they never were, and they act up. Particularly this one. Tamar is actually the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of the 12 tribes, right? And if you know your story very well, Judah has three sons, three sons. And he marries Tamar to the oldest son, and the oldest son is wicked and God kills him. <laughs> they didn't have any kids. So the custom says the second oldest boy has to marry the widow. If they have a baby, the baby will become his older brother. I know that's weird, but that's how it goes. The second son, his name's Onan, and maybe you've heard of Onan before. Onan decides that's really dangerous. He doesn't want to have another big brother. Now he's the big brother. He gets all the inheritance. Why would he want to give it to a baby he's going to have that won't even be considered his baby? It will be considered his brother. So he does this thing where... I guess, I guess you could, well, you, you, I don't want to be crass, so I won't even say it. But he doesn't quite make, he makes sure that in moments of um, conjugal visits, there's no opportunity for pregnancy. As the Bible says, he spills his seed on the ground. And God kills him for that. God kills Onan for that. Okay? So Judah's had three, and two are dead. And now Judah is very concerned about marrying his third boy to this lady because he thinks she's cursed. Okay, so what did she do? She puts on fishnet stockings. She stands under a red light in a city like Amsterdam, and she waits for Judah to come by, and she gets pregnant from her father-in-law. Naughty lady. <laughs> Naughty lady. And she has a boy, and she's almost burned to death at the stake. I mean, fortunately, she, she, she basically took his wallet, and she says, the baby belongs to the guy whose ID I'm holding, and there's like a picture of Judah there, right? And, and so Judah says, wow, this girl who's not Jewish, who's a Canaanite, is more righteous than I am. And Matthew puts her in the genealogy of Jesus, which is a patriarchal genealogy. Pretty interesting, I think. Ruth also not Jewish. She's a Moabite, which means she didn't worship God above all other gods. She worshiped God in addition to other gods. In fact, there were Moabite gods called things like El Elyon that they worshiped more than they worshiped El Shaddai. Okay, anyway. Ruth, of course, is the one whose husband dies, and then she clings to her mother-in-law, and her ways are her mother's ways. Ruth, interestingly enough, and, and I'm really not superimposing this, is the number of... Um, Feminist scholars who do this, but, but, but non-feminist scholars do this as well. Um, Ruth uh, needs a husband so that she can have a baby to replace her dead husband. Same thing I just told you, right? When your husband dies, you've got to replace him by having a male son. And she ends up finding that in a guy named Boaz, who she goes to in the middle of the night while he's asleep in the threshing floor and takes all of his clothes off and lays down next to him. Pretty racy stuff, the Bible. Uh, I'm wondering why I didn't think so as a teenager, but when that video game comes out, right, <laughs> it'll be rated M. 
anyway, these are two foreign women who have very non-traditional, frankly, sexual experiences that are in Matthew's genealogy. So one starts to wonder, even in the beginning, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, is he also trying to kind of prime the pump to this Jewish group of people that there is welcome for non-Jewish folks? Does that, does that make sense? If this is really boring, say, like, stop. That's really boring. Just talk about something more exciting. The next group, right, and there's 12 between these guys, too, of course, is David the Beloved, and then that goes all the way to arguably the best king that there is. Better than David is Josiah. Okay? Uh, to give you a time span idea, right, this is maybe plausible because dates for Abraham are around 1300, just to give you an idea. I've seen 1450, but Abraham has camels that are domesticated, which is, they weren't domesticated in 1450, so not possible. Uh, there's something weird with the story. David, we think, is somewhere around, oh, like 1050 or 1020, okay? So look at that, 300-year gap. Okay, 14 generations. Hey, plausible, right? How long is a generation? 20, 25 years times 14, right? 280. Plausible, right? If it were 30 years, okay, 360 years, look, then we just put a six there. Fine. Okay? Josiah, we think, reigning sometime around, he actually gets killed fighting uh, Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. That's like six, oh, I'm going to do this wrong, seven, I think it's 709. So he, he, gets, he gets killed in a chariot battle. So then we're going 1020. Okay, sure, right? 300 years, pretty plausible again. Yeah? 12 generations between them. And what does Matthew do this time? Well, <laughs> he includes another woman. He goes David and then Solomon. And Solomon, of course, his mother was Uriah's wife. <laughs> well, the Hebrew Bible calls her Bathsheba, right? So Matthew would have known that. So why does he call her Uriah's wife? Probably to emphasize she's not Jewish either. <laughs> Uriah's a Hittite. Remember, this is the woman that David sees ritually cleansing herself on top of Ruth. She's not taking a bath. She's ritually cleansing herself. Women didn't take baths. Men didn't either. She, she, she's worshiping God by washing off the uncleanliness of her body. David sees her because he's in a place he shouldn't be. And he takes her and she becomes pregnant. And then David kills Uriah, who, by the way, is one of his best friends. So he knew exactly where to look and he knew where she'd be, when she'd be. A lot of people call this at least statutory rape, if not outright. Okay? Matthew includes her. Okay? Foreign women. Was the genealogy this interesting when you read it? <laughs> and maybe it's still not interesting. Don't worry, I'm almost done. Um, and then we get to go from Josiah 12 to Joseph. And again, the funny thing is, Joseph is not in any way related to Jesus. <laughs> Although, 
people reckon that they're related. So when they reckon Jesus' descent, they will, of course, do it through his reckoned father. And Matthew's comfortable adopting that. There's one interesting person in, uh, uh, maybe it's this one. There's a guy named Zadok. Uh, that word means righteousness, and we're not really sure that's a real person. So one of Jesus' heirs is righteousness, just so you can say. There's also a high priest named that, although there's never a king named that. So is, Jesus is related through Abraham through kings, but also through priests. Sounds a lot like the Epiphany story, okay? Um, here's the funny thing. You've seen these dates, right? 300 years, 300-ish years, 705 years. <laughs> not plausible. Not. So again, I told you there's certain numbers that matter in Judaism, and I told you three is one of them, and I told you 12 is another one. And so there you have three 12s. Remember, Matthew is not writing a history book. Not interested in that. The Greek people didn't write history books. They wrote hagiographies. They wrote books that were really about believing in people and, and the deeds they did. Of course, we know some of those things to be tragedies, and they have things like hubris in them and the tragic downfall, all that business. This one, though, is really written so that you'll have a sense of who Jesus represents and how he does. And, and, and there you have Matthew doing that, maybe. Don't know if this enhances the view of Matthew for you, but I had to learn it a bunch of times, and there it is for you. <laughs> Any, uh, yes, ma'am. If we have no idea of what the population of the Jewish people would have been about the time of Jesus. Well, and this is tricky, right? Because what you'll, what you'll read is that there are the Jews, and Jews, this is important to know, Jews actually is a very ambiguous term. We think of somebody Jewish usually as somebody that's either religious or somebody that's ethnic, right? How many of you know somebody Jewish who is non-practicing? Yeah, arguably 95% of Jewish people are not strict adherents to Judaism, but they're, they have that cultural heritage. Does that make sense? Okay. There's even a third category going on at the time of Jesus. Jew really means someone from Judah or Judea. Okay? Now just think, Judea, that's like Palestine today. Okay? And it's never been monolithically Jewish ever, ethnically or religiously, because there's Canaanites, Perizzites, Moabites, Ammonites, Hittites, etc. Right? So when the Gospels use the word Jews, it's really hard to know. Are they talking about people who live in the land region? Are they talking about people who have a cultural descendants from Abraham? Or are they talking about people who are religious? <coughs> Certainly they could be talking about all three at the same time, but do you, do you start to sense the ambiguity here? So when Jesus, you see, is crucified by the Jews, well, of course he was. He was crucified by the people who lived in the area. Was he crucified by religious Jews? Well, we don't know. 
because the word itself lacks that precision. A lot of different people there. You could be a Roman citizen and be born in Judah and retain your citizenship, right? Which would mean you worship the emperor at this time. You'd still be called a Judean and possibly a Jew. So it's really hard to say, right? King Herod, who's the king we all know about, right, uh, is not ethnically Jewish. His father was forced to convert to Judaism by the Maccabees. They forced everyone to either convert, die, or flee. And Herod is an Idumean. So he's one of this other group, sort of a tribal religion that swept in. So Jewish people would consider him half Jewish at best. Although he thought himself the Jewish king. Uh, yes, ma'am. Not entirely, because Egyptians also circumcised their people. And so did, we think, some Canaanites, including people from Edom, Edomites who are descended from Esau, argues the Bible, right? And I told you uh, a couple of times ago, maybe, that what we know is that Jewish people circumcised their babies more than the other people did. That is, they cut more skin off. Um, in the other tribes, the understanding for it was that when you prune a bush, when you prune a bush, it makes the plant more fertile, yields more fruit. So in the other tribes, that's the reason to circumcise their infants is so that their boys can be more fertile. In the Abraham story, the sign of circumcision has very little to do with fertility, although keep in mind, Abraham wants a baby. So is God working through a known cultural symbol with Abraham to begin with? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Maybe you've never heard that before, um, but you can find that from Glenn Holland, professor at University of Chicago. Anyway, that's, that's uh, yeah, I have those tapes if you want to listen to them or you can read it in a book. Um, any questions about this? If you were here, did I tell you this week before Christmas, important practice about betrothal? We don't do this now. Betrothal happens a year before the wedding. There's no weddings with a rabbi. There's none of that, right? We, there's no chuppah. There's no stomping on a glass because the temple had only just been destroyed in 70 of the Common Era or AD, right? So they hadn't done that yet. Weddings were really small, really small. Was there a ceremony? Mostly there was a feast. Were there vows exchanged? Don't know. Depends on where you lived, okay? The real key is that a betrothal, the husband pays the bride price, a year later, then they, they sort of consummate the relationship with a feast right before that that probably lasts all night, okay? So Joseph has paid his life savings toward Mary's father. We don't even know his name. And then she gets pregnant, and Joseph thinks, golly, I could get my money back, and Mary would get killed, or I could just forfeit my life savings and quietly divorce her and be single the rest of my life. I'll do that which is why you see scripture reckons him a righteous man because he's willing to give up everything for this lady, you know, so she can live. And then the angel of the Lord says, you don't need to do that. Okay? So that's the betrothal thing. Not, it does not mean engaged. I doubt any of you when you got engaged paid a price <laughs> to a father. 
of some sort. Well, some of you might have, right? I've heard anecdotally, it usually wasn't money, but maybe it was like oiling a gun, you know, and you had to sit through that ritual. Anybody had one of those rituals? Just curious. But you've heard about them. This is Texas, right? Guns, oiling. Okay, all right. Okay, well, let's talk then about Matthew 2, if that's okay. By the way, if you you just let me know what you'd like me to do different, and, and I'll try. Matthew 2 is really the story of today. It's about the Magi, right? And why does Matthew have the Magi? Well, no idea, except that I told you maybe Matthew is trying to prime the pump for foreign people, and Matthew does it again. Because the Magi are definitely not from around here. <laughs> uh, in fact, most scholars, and you can read this interesting uh, where there's several interesting volumes that trace who the Magi might have been and where they're from and what they believe and all that business, right? But, but um, without ruining the sermon, that, and, which may not be very good anyway, um, the Magi probably Zoroastrian priests from present-day Iran, right? So they would have traveled a thousand-plus miles to come see this child, having uh, studied their, their astrological, not astronomical, but their astrological charts, okay? They show up having watched his star, and of course they see stars because they're trying to predict the future off of stars, right? I mean, they're, they're trying to know what Libra and Pisces are going to do today. And, and they show up, and they, they know it, and what's interesting is none of the Jewish people have seen it. They just have no I mean, Herod has no idea that there's anybody special in the land, and no one in the land knows either because Jesus isn't born in the guest room. He's born downstairs in the common area with the animals right? So along come the Magi, and, uh, and they just sort of say, where is the new king? And that makes Herod very nervous, because Herod's already killed, mind you, like four or five of his own children, because he was worried they were trying to take the throne from him. He also killed his wife, who bore many of the children, who he was just head over heels in love with, because, well, he thought maybe she was involved in a plot. So when Herod becomes nervous, or afraid, and all of Jerusalem with him, the real question is why all of Jerusalem's nervous? <laughs> is it because there's a new king, or because Herod's afraid there's a new king? Because when Herod's afraid there's a new king, there will be blood. And really, lots of people are more afraid of Herod than anything else. And if you'd like to read a compelling chapter on that, I commend to you The Source by James Michener, which describes really the death of Herod and how in every city throughout his regency, he conscripted about 20 of the most beloved people in town with the order, upon my death, you will kill them so that people will mourn the day I die. Uh, and that sounds like Herod, actually. Uh, okay, yes, ma'am. And see, one wonders, because actually ancient Judaism tracked astrology pretty well, too. And again, it sort of is, in some ways, because they're the only ones who see it, makes you wonder if Matthew is trying to tell his people, look, there's other people who get this, it's not just you. He's doing it very gently. You could gloss over it if you chose to. But if you read it seriously, you would start to think, how did, how did they know? And everybody else didn't know. Isn't that a great question? Yes, sir. Yeah. 
right? Could have been women, may not have been wives, may not have been men, may not have been kings, right? Although, if you go to Cologne, Germany, you can visit the tombs of the three wise men. They're the relics, yeah. Are they really the three wise men? Let's be serious, you know? In case you're wondering if maybe you've ever seen this emblem, that's what Constantine saw before the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 311 and had everybody paint on their shields and then they won. It came with the voice, right? You know this one too. In the sign you will conquer. So if you've been to a Roman church, you've seen both of those. Well, there is now also traditional lore that the star, the Magi tracked, looked just like the Cairo. Which, if you'd like to know, is in Greek the first two letters of Christ. Okay? All that's later. None of it's biblical. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's not biblical. Okay? All right. Um, what else can I tell you? Um, notice that Her Herod does something somebody else has done before. They're really afraid that there'll be a new king, or dare I say a deliverer, and they decide to kill all the baby boys. Who's done that before? Pharaoh. Now remember, Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish group. And of course, he is going to show Jesus as being in continuity with all of the Jewish heroes. And he even includes some of the sheroes, right, as I've said. Hero number one. <laughs> Hero number two is Moses, right? And so Jesus, he doesn't get floated down the river in a basket, but there is a Pharaoh who will kill all the baby boys, right? And it's Herod. Do we have any record of it happening? No. Sound like something Herod might do? Maybe, actually. But notice what they do. You see, Matthew is not even happy with you just to know that there's somebody else threatening baby boys. No, Matthew has Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt so that Jesus can fulfill the scripture, out of Egypt I've called my son. None of the gospel writers have Jesus fleeing to Egypt, and it actually makes no sense to go there. None. It makes none sense to go to Egypt. But Matthew puts them there so that they can leave. And then, you see, Jesus will be just like the Israelite people they left down in Egypt. So Matthew quotes scripture very loosely and liberally. This is important for you to know. Well, we think, maybe, well, so Jesus has to be under two when the Magi come because Herod kills all the two-year-olds and under, not the three-year-olds, which would mean we think Jesus historically born in 4 B.C. or B.C.E. So this would happen had it happened before 2 or in the year 2 before our common era. Does this make sense? So Jesus is like a one-and-a-half-year-old. It's probably a fair guess at the time of the visit of the Magi. Now, why on earth he's still in Bethlehem, we have no idea. Because in the story, Joseph and Mary aren't from there. Or actually, in Matthew, they might be. In Matthew, they never start out in Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? 
Maybe they were just living in Bethlehem all along, and then they move. And in fact, Matthew will tell you that they moved to the village of Nazareth to fulfill the scripture, he shall be called the Nazarene. Now, that scripture is nonsense, and Matthew is terrible for doing this. The scripture does not say he'll be called the Nazarene. The scripture says he will be called a Nazarite. <laughs> and what's the difference? Well, you can read this, and there's a category of people in the book of Leviticus that are called Nazarites. And those are regular old Jewish people. They don't have to be priests. And what they do is they make a vow to God. And during the time of their vow, which is not lifelong ever, never lifelong, they don't drink wine, which is really challenging, and they don't eat any dead animal product, which means they don't eat meat or touch dead things, and they don't cut their hair. And that's the sign that they're keeping the vow. When the vow's over, they shave their head completely bald and they start over. The Apostle Paul does this. You can read about it. He takes a vow. When he's done, he shaves his head. There are Nazarites in the Bible. Let's think through some of them. Samson, who breaks every single one of those conditions because he kills a lion and eats honey out of it, drinks plenty of wine, and he gets his hair cut, right? When he gets his hair cut, that's the third strike, all of his strength is gone, right? Notice he didn't lose his strength till strike three. But when that happens, he's struck out. Interestingly enough, Samuel, the prophet, is a Nazarite because his mother was barren and couldn't have a child. When she does, she gives him to God literally by dropping him off at the temple and leaving him there. So Samuel grows up in the temple and is a vegetarian and never cuts his hair. He's the one who makes Saul the king and David the king. Okay? Lifelong Nazarite. Samson's supposed to be. John the Baptist, another lifelong Nazarite. He eats locusts, which aren't really considered in the living category like meat and wild honey, right? And he didn't cut his hair. So there's neat little pictures of John the Baptist with that nice Spanish beard, you know. He probably looked more like Hagrid from the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> and that hair would have been gross, M more like Bob Marley Hagrid, if you can imagine, with the sort of natural dreading and beeswax and that sort of business, okay? So really, what Matthew is trying to do is put Jesus in this vow-taker category and make it geographic. And of course, we know that Jesus drinks wine. We sure know he touches dead people, even though they end up being alive when he's done. And then we don't know anything about him cutting his hair. But I just want you to notice what Matthew is doing. This is really important from the beginning. Matthew will say, this happened to fulfill the scripture. And, Jesus, and Matthew's not telling you that the Hebrew Bible is full of people like Nostradamus predicting the future. And look, Jesus answered all their predictions. What Matthew's trying to say is, Jesus resonates with the Torah completely. Look, he's a Nazarite. <laughs> look, he came out of Egypt. Look, 312's pretty good, Jewish folks. You, 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 you see what I'm saying? So when, Jesus says he, when Matthew says he fulfills Scripture, don't think that 
the Hebrew Bible has been yearning for the figure of Jesus. It actually stands alone. What Matthew is saying is Jesus resonates with the yearning, but also is the solution to the yearning. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? He's trying to connect Jesus to every facet of Jewish tradition and anticipation possible, even if he has to cut some corners. Yeah, again, it's a great question, because the women are in the tradition. He's, he, you know, he could have chosen to left them out, but, but a lot of people will tell you that perhaps what he's doing, in appealing to these people who have a very strong sense of tradition, he's also appealing to the non-traditional people in the tradition, so that in his current congregation, there can be appeal and consideration for those non-traditional people in their midst. I don't, we, none of us will ever know the answer, right? But interesting way to read it. I'm going to get a napkin now uh, so that I can wipe that off. And, and of course, none of this is helpful what I'm writing up on the board, but I'm pretty committed to doing it anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe it just helps me organize my own brain, which is obviously not that organized. Um, is that okay? That was Matthew 1 and 2? Yeah. All right. Yes, ma'am? Yes. They don't drink wine. I'll tell you that right now. They don't drink wine. <laughs> so they keep a third of it. <laughs> but they have really short hair, those boys. And I'll tell you why later, if you want to know. Well, because there's a verse that Paul talks about in Corinthians that nature itself puts a man to shame to have long hair, right? So what they've done is taken that one and smooshed it with the wine thing, and, and there you go. And what about the dead animal thing? Depends on what kind of Nazarites you are, but in general, Nazarenes, pretty socially conservative folks. Yeah. Church of the Nazarene, yeah. Which is actually pretty similar to the Methodist Church without being in the United Methodist Church. It's in some ways really descended from Methodism. Was that helpful? Yeah. Probably not. Uh, okay, anything else in chapters 1 and 2? You got it in front of you. Um, okay, maybe we can just go to Matthew chapter 3. I, I realize this is less interactive. I, I realize I'm giving you a lecture. Um, well, well, just at some point, we'll not do that. In, in, in chapter 3, Matthew does his thing again, where he takes the scripture and changes it. So Matthew knows the scripture, but he does something really naughty. When he's introducing John, he says, you know, in order to fulfill the scripture that's written in Isaiah, he says, Matthew says, a voice calling in the wilderness. Make, make way for the Lord, right? And that's a corruption of what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, a voice calling. In the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now you may say, what's the difference? 
Well, for Matthew, the difference is, look, John's in the wilderness. He's a voice in the wilderness. Calling makes straight the way of the Lord from the wilderness. In Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, in all the wild places, make it straight. Particularly, Isaiah is saying, talking to a group of people who are living in Babylon in exile, they're going to have to come through the desert to come home. And Isaiah is saying, the way home will be straight and smooth. All the rough places, all the valleys will be exalted and the high places laid low so that there's this super highway. We build these today, right? I mean, my, my earliest memory of Kentucky, and I confirmed it, is when I went there, is driving across I-64 and seeing the hills that have been dynamited to heck so that the road could go straight, right? And then you see these sort of strip-mined hills on your left and right. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. In those rough places, blow them up. <laughs> Strip-mine the hills so that you can have a nice, straight, super highway. I just wanted you to know, Matthew plays with the scripture, and we may not realize this because, you know, as a conservative evangelical, we were never allowed to, to play with scripture, but Jewish people do it all the time. They love playing with scripture. They come up with whole stories that they pass on for generations that are exactly like where you put the colon or even what happens between the punctuation, right? Like you've heard the story of the golem. No? The rabbi who during the pogrom makes like a clay monster and then puts a piece of the scroll into the monster, which is the name of God, so that it becomes alive and kills all the checks. No? That stuff gets passed on and on and on. And maybe you've heard of Lilith, Adam's first wife, um, who wanted to be the head of the household, so God threw her to Egypt. Well, I mean, that story is like 1,600 years old. And it's been passed down, passed down, passed down. And of course, it's not biblical at all. It's, it's an imagination of some rabbi. And other people thought, hey, that's a great story. Let's tell it to our children. Uh, and, and Judaism knows that that happens and celebrates it, but it also says, this is a story. Anyway, in the, in the evangelical tradition I grew up in, you just never dare do that. Never dare. Even though without realizing it, we do that all the time. There's three kings, and their names are Balthazar and Melchior and something else. And <laughs> if you want to really read about those three kings, there's this book called Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff. And it's meant to be a comedy, but in some ways it represents the tradition of the three kings very well. It, it traces them down to those, like one of them's like a, a Hindu sage that can levitate off the floor and stuff like that. It, uh, the rest of it's relatively crass, but, but, but it's a pretty interesting book. Anybody read Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff? It's, it's kind of fun, right? And in some ways, it's not awful, you know? Like, you read it, and it's not a bad book. It's relatively well-written and entertaining, and Jesus comes down okay, in, you know, in the book. So uh, the rest of you maybe don't want to read it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so what about John? Well, listen, John is clearly compared to the prophet Elijah because he's writing to Jewish people, and Jewish people, you know, Every time they have the Seder meal, they hope that the prophet uh, is going to show up at the end of the meal. They leave a chair open for him, and they leave a glass and a place setting, right? That happens at every Passover Seder. They wait for the, the prophet Elijah, and he'll come after the Dianus, right after you sing Dianu. Um, so, so that's John. And look who John's really critiquing. Hey, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you Jewish officials, you better repent. 
Jewish leaders are the ones who need to repent. Not those Greek people, not those Romans, but those people who think they know the Jewish law the most are the ones Matthew is most interested in correcting. Because, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones not accepting Jesus for whom Matthew claims he is. Does that, does that make sense-ish? Notice that Jesus decides to get baptized, and John says, no, no, you should baptize me. I should not baptize you. And Jesus says, well, it's proper in order to fulfill all righteousness, whatever that means, right? And, and probably what it has to do, right, is that Jesus is in a line of succession through the prophet Elijah. Historically. It means something else. I'll tell you that next week in the sermon. You probably, I mean, I, I think it means something. I'll try to tell you next week. I may not communicate it, and it may not even be that important. Okay, um, notice one other thing about this baptism. There's a, vo- a dove comes down and a voice from heaven, and the only one who hears it and sees it is Jesus. Nobody else hears it or sees it. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, so here's what, we, here's what we think. We think Jesus is a full-grown adult, probably 30 years old. I can't remember why we think that. There's, it probably has to do with some officials that are named in the blank year of their reign, although all that's questionable, you should know. When it talks about Quirinius being governor of Syria and Pilate being the, the governor, he never was the governor, he was a different position. Um, anyway, when, when you hear about stuff like that, that's why they do it. Uh, 30, you've got to keep in mind, that's the year we think, getting really close to the end of the average male lifespan, which is 35. Right? So if that's right, Jesus was 30 when he gave up his trade, whatever it was, either specialized woodwork or sitting outside of Home Depot and hoping someone would hire him for the day, which seems maybe somewhere in the middle of those is more likely. Uh, 30, he gets crucified three years later, and 35 is when, like, the, the apex of the expected lifespan, all right? So actually, he's, hap- he's killed pretty old in his life. Does that make sense? We think, golly, 33 is awfully young. It's not, right? That's when you die from your abscessed tooth is 35, right? Or from malnutrition, right? That's, that's what these people are up against. So, so we're thinking then John is probably six months older than Jesus. We think that because Luke links their birth together, although Matthew doesn't tell you anything about that. Nothing. Uh, we, we, we are pretty sure, though, that all of these have this really interesting link between um, John and Jesus because Jesus doesn't start teaching anything until John's in prison. Do you notice? Uh, and that's because a lot of people think that John was Jesus' rabbi, and then when the rabbi was gone, Jesus became the rabbi of that little group, which may have included people like Andrew and Peter, you know, and, and James and John. Does, does that make sense, even if that sounds new or weird? Um, well, I'm not really sure what else to tell you that's exciting. A uh, couple other nitpicky things, right, is that... Um, Notice that in chapter 4, the person who comes and visits Jesus right off the bat is called the tempter. 
later the verse uh, devil is used, but initially he's the tempter. And um, that is sort of very Jewish because Jewish people don't believe in a devil. They believe in what's called the Yetzer Hara, which is this, the, 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 the spirit of not great things, <laughs> not necessarily evil. And that's the spirit that we all face on a regular basis that tempts us to pick what's good instead of what's best. And so the spirit that compels you to do the good instead of the best is coming to Jesus and asking him to settle for what would be good. With the suggestion, right, that we often settle for what's good, it's a lot better than picking what's evil, don't you think? Many of the decisions we make, especially as parents, at the time we weren't thinking, how can I ruin my children's life? We were really doing the best we could at that moment, and some of them, in retrospect, turned out to be like divinely inspired. <laughs> Wow, it worked. <laughs> That's how it was from God. It worked. <laughs> the way I wanted it to. Does that make sense what I mean? Okay, anyway. So, so the Yetzer Harah comes to Jesus, and the temptation's different um, because the order's different. There's, there's the business about bread into stones, and then there's the business about um, bow down to me, and then there's jumping off the temple. Now, in Luke, it goes... Stones to bread, jump off the temple, bow down before me. Okay, so why would Matthew put the temple last? Because he's Jewish. <laughs> and what do these things mean? Well, you've got to think, right, if, if, if the Bible really believed Jesus is the child of God and the devil is the red guy with the horns and the spade tail, the Son of God will never be tempted to Satanism. I mean, let's just be real, you know? Why would you ever, as God, as God incarnate, say, oh yes, I will be a Satan worshiper? I mean, that just makes no sense. And so if that doesn't make sense, the traditional take on the other ones doesn't either, right? So it's important to know Matthew's people, like everybody else's, are looking for the new Messiah, the new king of Israel. Israel hasn't had a king since 66 before the Common Era, B.C., B.C.E., because the Romans took over. They want a new king. The word for king in Hebrew is Messiah. Well, one of the words is Messiah. You have to be a Messiah to be a king. Okay? So the Messiah is going to be this king everybody wants, who's going to deliver them from Roman oppression, who's going to feed hungry people. And not only will they deliver from Roman oppression, but will lead the Jews essentially to cultural hegemony. Right? So, look, you want to feed hungry people? You go to a desert, there's a lot of rocks. The Judean desert's rocky. It's like San Diego, granite, boulders. Those of you that are going, you'll see. It's not like the Sahara. It's like big rocks. Right? If you could turn rocks into bread, you could feed everybody forever. Okay? So, instead of, oh, you're hungry, give yourself something to eat, another way to view this is, look, you want to be a good king, you want to feed people, turn the rocks to bread, you'll feed everybody today. No more hunger. World hunger gone. Pretty good thing, don't you think? Jesus says, if I do that, I'll be something good, but I think God's got something better for me. Now, all of you might sit there and think, Jesus, what you had in mind is wrong. <laughs> you should have picked the good thing instead of what you thought was better. And you should be open to that, really. But Jesus says there's this better way, okay? 
So he declines. Then, uh, well, you know, is it really about worshiping Satan or is it really worshiping the idea that everybody has? So, so what if Jesus chose to be the military ruler and he could have been successful? He could have conquered the whole world and had a just kingdom, right? That's a good thing, right? But he's got in mind maybe something better than that. Because, of course, if you convert people by the sword, you've converted them by the sword. It is. Although, right, and one way to read Jesus in the temptation is, do the means ever justify the end? So it's a really philosophical way to read this, right? And people have struggled with that ever since, including Christian St. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Do you kill Hitler or not? Killing is wrong, do you do it? <laughs> because there's someone else killing a lot more, right? And, 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 and Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, well, you know, if I kill him, I'm becoming just like him, because I think killing's wrong, and by killing him, I'm being him, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> well, we, this is actually pretty philosophical, right? Could be. Or it could just be about Satan worship. It's really whatever you want it to be about. And then uh, there's that temple business, and of course the expectation is the Messiah will show up in a special way. And the temple that Herod built, you know, the original temple is probably only about 30 feet tall, and, and this may surprise you, but you, there are people who can jump off a 30-foot building and, and land okay, you know, without even breaking their bones. A lot of us would break bones because we don't know how to land, you know, but, but some people, let's call them ninjas, know how to <laughs> jump off 30-foot buildings. Um, Herod, however, had made the temple much bigger than 30 feet. So to jump off the temple, the center of God's home on earth, and to kind of float down to the earth would be a pretty significant sign in the Jewish mind that you're the guy. Right? And if you are the guy, why not do it that way? And Jesus decides maybe there's a better way, you see. And then the temptations are all over. And then he goes and recruits people, and he recruits people maybe he already knew. And I just want to point out something we never really recognize, two things. Uh, I don't get to preach on this, so I'm going to tell you now. Um, one of them is, in the Bible, when family members are mentioned, they're named from most important to least important. Okay? Always the case. So what you'll see is Simon and his brother Andrew. Well, we know Simon's more important than Andrew because he's Peter. Okay? And then there's the sons of Zebedee, and you know who they are, right? Um, one of them's the evangelist John, but please notice that James, his brother, is more important than he is. We don't know much about this guy because he gets his head cut off uh, about three years after the resurrection or possibly sooner. But in the earliest Christian community, James was much more important than John. So when you read the Gospel of John and it talks about the disciple who Jesus loved, and we all think it's John, it would be more likely James of those two. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's a little critical of the tradition, but please notice how important it is. When you read the book of Acts and you hear about these evangelists who are called apostles, there's this lady named uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, and they're always listed in that order. The woman is more important than her husband always more important than her husband. So those people who say that Paul didn't recognize women, frankly, are just really off base here because Aquila is an apostle. Apostle, not disciple, right? That applies to those 12 people who saw Jesus while he was alive, traditionally, and she's more important than he is. Uh, one other thing that's really important, right, and I just think this is fun, 
I'm going to be somewhat devotional here at the end because it's kind of nice, is uh, Jesus says to the fishers, follow me and I'll make you fishers of people, right? And just because I don't get to preach it in church, I'm going to preach it now. Um, I've heard a lot of different things, right? Which is we go angling for people out in the world and try to reel them in into God's flock, right? Which just sounds really terribly violent to me. And it sort of um, presumes that we're people and everybody else is fish. So once you become a Christian or something like this, you become a real person. And otherwise, you're just a fish or a shark or something swimming in the sea, right? It's really kind of not a great metaphor. Uh, my last guy who I knew, and I liked him a lot, he said, you know, I'd always heard this as, you catch them and God will clean them. Okay? <laughs> Cute, although it presumes that we've already been cleaned up ourselves, which is, I think, a rather hasty assumption in my case, right? I mean, I try not to assume that too much. No, I want to suggest to you there's something really interesting about fishing for people, um, particularly if we, if, we, if we stay in the realm of the metaphor where, as people... They're fish swimming around, and we are too. That the way we fish for people is by swimming in a way that's compelling for the other fish to join us, right? And so you know that there are these things called schools, and that they can uh, almost have one mind move around, right? And they, they, there's different ways scientists say that they do this. But of course, the advantage to swimming as a school, right, is that um, particularly the fish that are in front, they get tired. As they get tired, they can they can go back and draft from the other fish, right? And that's why I'm pretty sure we say the creed, we believe in one God, because I don't believe that every week. But in the weeks I don't, someone else does, and so we do, you see? And in the weeks that I do, hopefully someone's drafting off of me, right? And the reason we swim in schools, right, is because of things like drafting, but also because of efficiency and common protection from enemies. We just look a lot bigger and we can do a lot more. And wow, isn't that the part of the, the thing about living in a community intentionally, right, is that we can do more together, which is sort of our slogan at St. Thomas. So I think the trick here, right, is that it tells us that to be good evangelists, we, we need to live lives that are compelling for other people to join us. And that we don't do that with what we say or with the bumper sticker on our car, but fundamentally with the way we treat each other, especially when we disagree and we don't like the way the other person's dressed or their politics, do we say, well, we'll swim together anyway. That's how we fish for people. Okay, so next week we'll talk about an organ, and then in two weeks we'll talk about Matthew 5 through 12. Okay? A lot of teaching in, the, in those.